I just want to take this opportunity to express appreciation for uh, your participation in this conference. Appreciate your willingness to take time and uh, to give yourself to come and be with us these last couple of days. It's been a wonderful encouragement and uh, the conversations that I've had with so many of you, thank you for uh, the ways that you have uh, spoken about your own lives and ministries and about founders. And um, It's been a tremendous encouragement to have this time together with you in the fellowship. The instruction uh, from Jeff and Jim and Jared has been wonderful as well. Our times together in worship have been great. Um, but the incidental times I think God has used in wonderful ways in my own life and in the staff at Founders, as we've had time to talk a little bit, we'll debrief later, but uh, already we see how God has used these days together to be a tremendous encouragement. And we, we want to be useful to you, to your churches, so if there are ways that we can be, please don't hesitate to give us that opportunity. Stay in touch with us. Uh, we look forward to next year's conference. You'll hear more about that before we leave and the, the future efforts that we have to continue to produce content and material that we hope will be useful in churches. So keep your eyes open for that. Stay in touch with us on social media and through our website, and we'll be making uh, information known to you as soon as we can about when this documentary will be available widely. We're making it available free uh, to go as far as we can possibly go. I've actually had people from different nations that have contacted me uh, last night asking if when they could get it available to them. And there's some nations that you can't do it on the Internet, so we'll figure out ways to uh, make it available to them too. So please share it and anything you can do to help others access the material that's available through Founders, we would greatly appreciate. Well, let's pray together before we look into the Word of God once again. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for your word and your spirit. We know that it's by your word and spirit that you have revealed Christ to us. and That's our desire again this morning, to hear what your spirit would say to us through the ministry of your word. Give us clarity. Help us to understand accurately the things that are revealed. Give us a disposition to do your will to live according to what you say in the word so that we might know of the doctrine, whether or not it's from you. So we commit ourselves to you now. We ask for your spirit to work in us and have your way with us for Jesus' sake. Amen. The 19th century hymn writer Philip Bliss wrote a wonderful hymn that contains these lines in it. Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus is bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. And that's true. God's grace has come and rescued us from the condemnation that the law brings against lawbreakers. And we should never lose sight of that. We've emphasized the law of God a lot over the last few days, rightly so. But we must never allow our right appreciation of God's law hinder us from celebrating the grace of God in Jesus Christ that frees us from the condemnation of that law. And so as we look at everything that we can that the Bible says about God's law, let us always recognize that that law has been satisfied by the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ for all who trust in him. So remember him, trust in him, 
and look at the law, delight in the law, and where the law exposes sin, repent of sin. That's how we live, trusting Christ who has satisfied the law's demands that it has against us. We often quote the Apostle Paul in Romans 6.14, as we even did yesterday on the panel, that says, for we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And that is a beautiful truth. And we should never forget that truth. But we should always remember, as again we tried to point out yesterday, that Paul makes that point in the context of a larger teaching. He, he makes that statement as he is explaining how sin no longer dominates Christians. And we're not under the law because of what Jesus has done for us in rescuing us from the condemnation of the law. Listen to the whole statement of Romans 6.14 in its broader context. Paul writes in verse 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. And, and that's the hope. That's the reality. That we have been rescued by grace from the condemnation that the law brings because we have broken the law. And as such, the law is no longer ruling us as a way of attaining righteousness before God. That's the very point of the second part of the paragraph that we started looking at yesterday, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Uh, yesterday we looked at how the first couple of verses there teach us that God's Son esteems God's law. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Uh, he affirms the abiding authority of God's law, that not one iota, not one dot will pass away until it has all been fulfilled. Today we want to look at verses 19 and 20 of Matthew chapter 5 to hear what Jesus says about God's children in God's law. He's told us about his own relationship as God's only begotten son to God's law. So now he's going to build upon that and teach us about God's children, those who are in Christ and God's law. So turn again to Matthew chapter 5. Let me read verses 17 through 20, noting that we're going to be focusing on those last two verses this morning. Our Lord said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law and until all is accomplished. And then verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whereas in verses 17 and 18, Jesus affirms the abiding authority, the perpetuity of God's law. In verses 19 and 20, he calls his disciples to live righteously by carefully honoring God's law. 
we are to be righteous people and we pursue righteousness by carefully honoring the law of God. Notice verse 19 begins with that word, therefore. In other words, Jesus is about to draw an implication from what he has just said. He's going to make a point based upon the argument that he's already built. Because God's law has abiding authority, because he didn't come to abolish it but to fulfill it, the way that his followers are to regard the law has serious consequences. Our attitude toward, our regard for the law is serious because our Savior didn't come to abolish it but to fulfill it. And that law continues on until it fulfills the purposes that God has for it. Well, there are two consequences that I want to point out from our Lord's teaching that we should think seriously about, seriously about as his followers. The first is in verse 19. He says, greatness in Christ's kingdom is assessed by how God's commandments are regarded. How do you judge greatness among the people of God? How do you judge maturity in the kingdom of God? Well, you do it, Jesus says, based upon how God's commandments are regarded. But what are these commandments? What does he mean by them? Are they the things that he himself taught, his commandments? Or is it the commandments that have been given prior to this, up to this point, over the course of Old Testament history? Well, I agree with D.A. Carson, who says, it's hard to justify restriction of these words to Jesus' own teachings. For the noun in Matthew, for commandment, never refers to Jesus' words, and the context argues against it. What Jesus is talking about is the Old Testament commandments, the things that God has revealed to be his will for his people. And he says disregard for God's commandments leads to spiritual regression. To dismiss whatever God obligates you to is to put yourself on a pathway of going backwards spiritually. Whoever, as the ESV says, relaxes any of these commandments. The idea is to, to loose them, to unbind them, to kind of send them away. The New American Standard says annuls them. The New King James says whoever breaks one of the least of these. One of the least of these. What's Jesus mean by that phrase? Well, he recognizes that some commandments can be regarded as relatively more important than others. In Matthew 23, 23, he upbraids the scribes and the Pharisees because they were meticulous about the requirements in their system of tithing while neglecting what he calls the weightier matters of the law regarding justice and mercy and faithfulness. And when the lawyer came to him and asked him, what is the chief commandment? What's the greatest? Jesus said that the command to love God is greater than the command to love people. And so it is right for us to think in terms of greater and lesser commandments that God has given to us. What Jesus is emphasizing here then is that as his followers and citizens of his kingdom, we are not free to pick and choose which commandments we think ought to be kept. We don't have that license. 
Because he says here the least of the commandments, the things that you might regard as being insignificant, the things that might objectively be less significant than other things. We are not free to dismiss them, to break them, to think that they are of no importance with how we live our lives. Any commandment that still obtains for us as believers is our obligation to submit to in obedience. This would include every moral obligation that we have to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We cannot relax our attitude toward them. We cannot annul them. We cannot break them and think that it is an insignificant thing to do so. What this means is we must take what God requires of us in the 10th commandment as seriously as we do the first commandment. We can't say, well, you know, coveting is just a thing you do with your heart and mind, and so it's all right to covet. It's all right to to have inordinate desires for things that God's not given to me. It's all right to be jealous. Well, I would never have any God before the true God. I'll keep the first commandment. But the tenth commandment is not that serious. We're not free to say the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, is something we can set aside as long as we keep the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying if you try to set aside, if you relax, if you break the least commandment, he is holding it up, this understanding for us to recognize that if we're going to advance in greatness in his kingdom, we're going to have to take seriously the standard that God has revealed to us and pursue life according to that standard. But he doesn't just say whoever breaks one of the least of these. He goes on to say whoever teaches others to do the same. So you do it for yourself. That's one thing. You teach other people to do it. That is something even more serious. This, what is this? this is a sober warning to those of us who are ministers of the new covenant. Those of us who have responsibility to teach God's word to people. He is saying if we teach people it's okay to neglect any of God's commandments, the commandments by which he intends for his people to be guided, we're not only guilty of spiritual regression ourselves, We're also guilty of spiritual malpractice by leading others into regression. Evidently, some people can legitimately be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus said will be the consequence. What's the point he's making here? Well, evidently, you can be a Christian and be wrong on this issue. You can be a Christian and violate this standard what he is saying that we ought to aspire to you will be a weak christian you won't be a christian that is on the pathway to what jesus calls greatness in the kingdom but rather you'll be on the pathway to what he calls least in the kingdom your spiritual growth will be stunted and you can cause others to be spiritually stunted as well as christians that ought to sober us We ought to ask the questions, what do we aspire to? 
I mean, we don't aspire to mediocrity in anything of importance. If you engaged in sports, you wanted to be the best you can be. You have a job, you want to do your job the best you can do it. I mean, nobody just aspires to being the least. As Christians, shouldn't we aspire to to grow, to be strong, to attain maturity, to pursue greatness the way that God determines greatness to be? Well, if you violate his commandments, disregard them, you teach others to disregard them, Jesus says you'll be called least. William Hendrickson comments on this passage with this wisdom. He says, although all is of grace and nothing whatever is earned by the citizen of the kingdom of Christ, yet his rank or position in that kingdom will depend on and be commensurate with his respect for God's holy law. We're saved by grace. We don't keep the commandments in order for God to accept us. But having been saved by grace because of the fulfillment of God's law by our Savior, we want to be like our Savior. We want to live like Christ. Christ Christ-likeness looks like obedience to God's commandments. Disregard for His commandments leads to spiritual regression. Conversely, Jesus goes on to say that practical heeding of God's commandments leads to spiritual growth. Whoever does them, the commandments, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about practical obedience. He's talking about a way of living that recognizes that the God who created us, the God who has reconciled us to himself through his son, has revealed his will for us. And that we ought to embrace that will and order our lives according to it. In our children's catechism, we ask our kids, how can you glorify God? And they answer us by saying, by loving him and doing what he commands. Loving him, doing what he commands. When we teach others to live in obedience to God's commandments, we help them to understand what his will is as he's revealed it in his word, what his moral law is that is abiding upon us still today, then we are helping others to mature. We're helping others to see the pathway to greatness in the kingdom. Jesus says some will be called great in Christ's kingdom. Who are those people? Well, there's the spiritually maturing people, spiritually healthy people, spiritually growing people who don't play with sin, who don't pretend that they have no sin, but who are serious about a life of holiness, a life that is more and more being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you do this? If if this is what Jesus is saying, it's pretty simple, isn't it? It's not easy, but it's simple. What do you do? Well, you could start by memorizing the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you've never memorized the Ten Commandments, just make it a goal. Just memorize them so that you know the summary that is found in those ten words of what God's moral law is. Parents, I encourage you to to get your kids to memorize the Ten Commandments. Set it up as a a game or, or, or something. Make it enjoyable. 
so that they will learn the commandments. There are songs that you can teach your kids where they will sing the Ten Commandments. Just get whatever resources and tools you can so that they get it in their hearts and minds. Pastors, we ought to do this too. There, I've, I've, I bought banana splits for kids in the church who would memorize the Ten Commandments. You know? And I, I don't mind doing that. I mean, that's, a, that's a great deal in my book. You know, if the kids will memorize the Ten Commandments, I'm happy to, to reward them, to encourage them. Why? Because I think getting the commandments in their mind is going to save them? No. Because I want them to have an awareness that's readily available to them that there is a God and that he rules this world and he has revealed what his will is so that they can know it from their earliest days. We ought to read the commandments in your scripture reading times and in the Lord's day. I mean, it's, it's right to read God's commandments, at least periodically. It's, it's right to preach on the commandments. If you've never preached on the Ten Commandments, brothers, I'd encourage you to, to look into that, study them yourselves, and then preach them from this wonderful, liberating position we have as those who have been completely justified by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the law keeper. But preach those commandments. Let people know what God's will is. We need to be careful not to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that we keep the commandments in order to get into his kingdom. He's teaching us that in his kingdom, there is and there ought to be a deep regard for God's commandments. This is the same thing the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 in the opening verses of that chapter. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ kept the law for us. Law can't condemn us anymore. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then verse 4, purpose. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Christ fulfilled the law for us so that the law might be fulfilled in us. How? By walking according to the Spirit. Don't be deceived by anyone who would say, we don't need the law because we have the Spirit. If you're going to walk by the Spirit, you're going to fulfill the law. You're going to pursue a life that is in conformity to, in submission to God's law. The righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us as we walk according to the Spirit. Our Lord's kingdom is a righteous kingdom. And if you want to advance in it, you want to grow spiritually, you want to grow in holiness, then you must commit yourself to growing in obedience to His commandments. It's not complicated. It's really not complicated. It's just hard. Because it requires self-denial. It requires retraining your thinking. So that all of the ways that you've become accustomed to thinking and figuring out how to live your life. Without really paying attention to even what Jesus calls the least of these commandments. Has Served you fairly well so far. So here you are. Well, if you take Jesus seriously at his word, you say, wait a minute. I must begin to reorient my life and recognize there is a creator. He has spoken. He has given us his commandments. These commandments obtained to me today. 
And Jesus says that to neglect them, to break them, is to put myself into spiritual regression. To keep them, pursue them, is to put myself on a pathway of spiritual maturity and greatness. To believe that, to own that, and to live accordingly is what Christ is instructing us to do here. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what does genuine love for Jesus look like? Does it look like effusive expressions of devotion? Excessive religious activity? Deeply emotional experiences of worship? Well, not necessarily. All of those things can be good. All of those things can have a place in a life that genuinely loves Jesus. But if those things are not anchored in obedience to his commandments, then it's not legitimate expression of love for Christ. If you love Christ, you'll keep his commandments. Greatness in Christ's kingdom is assessed by how God's commandments are regarded. That's the first consequence of our Lord's teaching here in verses 17 through 18. The consequences rising from that in 19 and 20. But Jesus goes on further in verse 20 where he states a second consequence. Namely, that entrance into Christ's kingdom is impossible without a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. Entrance into the kingdom is impossible without a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Look at that verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were regarded as excessively righteous people in the first century. The scribes were the experts on the law. They were the teachers, the students of the law. The Pharisees were the practitioners of the law. They were the ones who were careful and meticulous regarding God's commandments. And so for Jesus to make this statement, unless your righteousness is greater than theirs, it must have been shocking to his hearers. It must have caused these disciples to kind of reel a little bit and say, how in the world is that going to be possible? The rabbis in Jesus' day had divided the law of the Old Testament into 613 commandments. 248 of them were positive, 365 of them were negative. The scribes sought to expound and elaborate on those laws by teaching people how to keep them, and the Pharisees held themselves up as the strictest adherents to those laws. But what was prevalent in much of the scribal teaching and pharisaical keeping of the law was that their obedience was largely external. So they came up with hundreds, if not thousands, of niggling rules to govern how the law of God ought to be kept. For example, fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. It goes on to say, on it you shall do, not do any work. So the scribes said, well, okay, what does it mean to work? And they wrote commentaries on this, and scribal law determined that to work was to carry a burden. Well, okay, that's a start, they said, but what is a burden? What constitutes a burden? And here is a definition of a burden that comes from scribal law. 
quote, A burden is food enough to equal the weight of a dried fig. It's enough wine for mixing in a goblet. It's milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice on, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make a pen, and it just goes on and on and on. I mean, they're meticulous. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy so you can't do any work. What's work? Oh, it's carrying a burden. What's a burden? Well, it's, you know, a fig's a burden. Half a fig wouldn't be a burden. But, you know, a fig's a they're, they're just being so meticulous, trying to work out what it means to keep this commandment, to, to be a law keeper. They were passionate about being righteous. But the righteousness they're passionate about is self-righteousness thinking that if they get all these things just right, that they will then be on that pathway. They will then have reason to hope that God will accept them because they will certainly be superior to everyone else. This is exactly the mentality that Jesus exposes and warns us against in Luke chapter 18 when he holds up a Pharisee as an example of those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treat others with contempt. When the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus on one occasion in Luke 16, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They, tr- they justify themselves by trusting in their own righteousness, which no matter how meticulous they were about Establishing it was only formal and external, and it did not touch their hearts. So when Jesus says our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, he is not saying that Christians must be stricter and more scrupulous than Pharisees are in the way that we pursue righteousness. He's not saying that. Rather, what he is saying is that the righteousness is Righteousness that is required for entrance into his kingdom is a deeper righteousness than they had. In reality, it is a different kind of righteousness than they had. It is a heart righteousness. This is exactly what is given to us in the new covenant as we heard in the last talk. In Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them, God promises, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. He's promising a work inside of his people. How does he do that? How does this new covenant promise get effected? He tells us in Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. This internal work of God's spirit involves carving God's law in our hearts and minds so that we not only have a knowledge of what he requires, but we begin with increasing devotion to have a delight in what he requires. We see its rightness and we see its goodness. And so our determination, our longings, our efforts to keep his commandments don't arise from some type of external compulsion 
But it is a result of the work of the Spirit of God in us. We love the law. We want to keep the law of our God. This kind of heart righteousness is not merely external. And therefore, it is greater than the righteousness possessed by the scribes and the Pharisees. It is a different kind of righteousness. Their righteousness came from themselves. It was self-righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus says we must have in order to enter into his kingdom comes from God. It's worked in us only through the regenerating power of his Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says without it, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. Why? Because the kind of righteousness he's talking about is the fruit of the new birth. It is the result of God's spirit doing work inside of a person. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is talking about here in verse 20 is not the righteousness that he himself is going to earn that is going to be imputed to his people when they trust him. We, we must have that righteousness that justifies us before God. But that's not what he's talking about. Rather, what he's talking about is personal righteousness that must be imparted to us through the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit that enables us to begin to live according to God's commandments. Not, not perfectly. Our best day, we can't do that. But intentionally. Not so that God will accept us. We've been accepted by the righteousness of Christ. But because God has accepted us. We love righteousness. We love Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so there's a reordering of nature. There's a reordering of thinking, of affections, of desires that looks to what God says. This is his will for us. And we embrace it. And from the heart, we go after it. You know, after making this point, Jesus immediately begins to expound the point further and elaborate on it in verses 21 through 48. And he does it. You read that in the light of, of verse 20. And you see what he's doing there. He's contrasting the way the scribes and Pharisees advocated a righteous life to true righteousness in his kingdom. You think if you just do these things, that's righteous. That's what you've been taught. That's what you've heard. But I tell you, I say to you, and he goes to the heart. He goes straight inside. And his point is, that's the kind of righteousness that's required if you're going to be in my kingdom. And that kind of righteousness doesn't come by sheer effort. That doesn't come through anything that you can produce. That kind of righteousness is the fruit of God's spirit working in you. So, you can't be in God's kingdom. You can't be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You can't be a disciple of Jesus unless you're born of God's spirit. And to be born of God's spirit is to be renovated within and put on a pathway of growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, growing in holiness, aspiring after that, which quite simply is identified as obeying God's commandments. Not so that. He will love you, but because he loves you, Jesus unleashes the law in the rest of this chapter by showing its strictness 
and its spirituality and how God has always been concerned with far more than our external activities. He's concerned with truth on the inward parts. He's concerned with life from within. He's concerned with an orientation that is joyfully, humbly submission in submission to his will. Righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. The law that our Savior satisfied by his death and life, his life and death and earning righteousness for all who trust him, that same law remains a guide to show us how we are to live. We trust him and we obey him. We sing that song, trust and obey. There, there is no other way to be happy in Jesus. Trust and obey. The law remains our guide. The law is that which we delight in because his spirit whom he has given to us calls us and empowers us to keep his commandments from the heart, to see that they are, yes, right, but they're also good. So, brothers and sisters, here's a good opportunity for us to examine ourselves, to assess our lives in the way that Jesus tells us we will be assessed, we are being assessed. Can you say with Paul, in my inner man, I delight in the law of God. Does the law seem repressive to you? Does it seem like God's giving you these requirements in order to hold out something from you, to keep you from something that would be right and good? If you have those kind of thoughts, you're not alone. That's just the way we've been discipled in our day. It's what sin does to trick us into thinking that we know better than God. And as that gets exposed, it's a great opportunity to, to repent and say, oh, God, change my thinking. Help me to see what Jesus is teaching here and where I have neglected this simple rule, this simple way of life to trust Christ and to keep his commandments. Work it in me by the power of your spirit. Aspire to be great in God's kingdom, which doesn't mean prominent, doesn't mean applauded by people. It means holy. It means growing in conformity to your Lord and Savior who himself kept God's commandments. Teach your children to know and love God's commandments because they come from our good and gracious God. They're right and they're good for us. And, and pray, ask God to give us. We should ask God to give us this orientation of our thinking and affections that would not let us be at peace with setting aside, with breaking the least commandment that still obtains and obligates us before our Creator and before our Redeemer. This is the way of spiritual health. This is the way of spiritual growth. This is the way of spiritual maturity. Oh, may God help us to give ourselves wholeheartedly to keeping His commandments through faith in the power of his spirit. This is the way to spiritual greatness in Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your faithfulness and for the simplicity of your instructions to us in these big areas of life, how we should live. We confess we confess that our, our problem is not uh, 
a lack of understanding. Our problem is that, that we still have sin remaining in us, and it wars against the, the work of your spirit within us. We pray that you, by your spirit you'd help us to put that sin to death and that you would change our thinking so that with Paul we can say that in our inner lives we also delight in your law. I, I ask that you would make of us men and women who aspire to greatness in your kingdom and who embrace that pathway to greatness of obedience to your commandments in the power of your spirit. Do that, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen.